Well, it's good to see everybody here tonight. We'll go ahead and uh, get started. There should be a new packet of notes that begins on page 112, our last handout. But I think we left off on page 111, so we were just getting ready to talk about Jesus' burial. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. So we'll finish up tonight. Uh, chapter 27, talk about chapter 28, it's relatively short, and uh, my goal is to, to leave some time at the end for some final questions, so you can be thinking about some questions if you've, if you've had some that you haven't asked yet. But uh, you all have persevered to the end, so I'm thankful for your participation, and uh, I'm excited to, uh, to go through this passage tonight. So let's, let's go ahead and pray together. And then we'll get going. Father, I am thankful uh, to be here tonight. I'm just thankful for this church, uh, the pastors, the, the members here who are serving to build a community that represents Christ. I'm thankful for your word that you've spoken to us, uh, that we can read it tonight in our own language uh, without any fear of persecution and in a nice, comfortable place. I pray that we wouldn't take that privilege uh, for granted, uh, but that we would listen very carefully to what your word says, uh, that you, your spirit would use that to transform us. And uh, we're just especially thankful for your son, and uh, we pray that we'd honor him tonight. And we ask for this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 27, uh, it says there, I'll put up the very first verse of that section, that as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. So when we left off last week, uh, Jesus had, had died. Uh, he, he physically dies on the cross. His immaterial part is separated from his physical part. And uh, when he dies, there's those four great signs that we left off describing. Miraculous signs, I think, that all point to the fact that Jesus really is who he claimed to be, that Isaiah's prayer has been answered, God has ripped open the heavens, and he has come down. He's not only heard the cry of his people and come to rescue them, 
but he's also making new people. He's making new people for himself. And so in a sense, the, the last days or the end time has, has kicked off and the rest of it could just be right around the corner. We, we never know when Jesus is going to return to finish uh, the mission that he has. But his, his body then, his, his human body is taken. And if he had just been left there uh, to the authorities, he probably would have just been thrown into a common grave or uh, maybe even perhaps just into a trash heap. I mean, they wouldn't have done anything respect, respectable to his body. But there's this man who evidently has been a disciple of Jesus who comes and requests from Pilate the body. So Mark and Luke, in their parallel accounts, they tell us that Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin who had been waiting for the kingdom of God. So he is in the midst of those leaders who, for the most part, are very secular and here and now oriented. There had been one of them who was looking forward to the Old Testament prophecies. And somewhere along the way, we don't know where it took place in Jesus' ministry, he realizes that Jesus really is who he claims to be. And so he becomes a follower of Jesus. But it's interesting, Matthew doesn't tell us that detail about it. He doesn't say anything about him being a member of the Sanhedrin. The detail that Matthew adds is the one in green up there, that he's a rich man. And I think most people, when they hear that, they rightly think of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53.9, that Jesus would be buried with the rich. All right, so we'll put up the the prophecy in just a couple different translations, and we'll talk about that in a second. But the first one is, is the NIV. He says there in Isaiah 53, and remember this is the suffering servant passage, and we've seen this passage over and over again, especially through the last few chapters of Matthew's story. So it seems to me likely that it's still on his mind when he adds that little detail about Joseph being rich. But it says here about Jesus, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Well, some people, I say there in the middle of that first paragraph, they've, they've objected to making the connection here because it doesn't seem like it's, he was supposed to be with the wicked, but instead he ended up with the rich. It actually looks like what Isaiah is saying is the wicked and rich are parallel. So he was going to end up with the rich, and he was going to go end up with the wicked, even though he hadn't actually done anything wrong. So the contrast is between where he ends up and the fact that he hadn't actually done anything to deserve it. But it's debated. You can see in some of the other translations of the Scripture that those same phrases, so I put the same words in, in the same colors so you can notice the difference. So in the NASB, the Christian Standard Bible, they change what is a, an and in the NIV. They translate that word as a yet, and then they change what's a though to a because. And they're legitimate, legitimate options. Uh, these, these committees know what they're doing. But it sets up a different contrast, right? It sets up a contrast saying he was supposed to be with the wicked, but instead he ends up with the rich. So that translation would support the usual connection that we make. I think sometimes when we read the story about Jesus, we just automatically assume that it's options two and three there in our mind. 
But if we go back and read option one carefully in some of the other translations, we realize it's actually kind of a difficult passage. And I really think the first option, the NIV, the ESV, is, is probably correct. But I still think there's a way to connect it to Jesus' burial. We'll talk about that. Yes? Yeah, I, yeah, and that sounds strange to our ears, but I think in Isaiah's prophecy, so if you'd started in chapter 1 and you've been reading all the way through Isaiah, one of the things that he um, points out that's happening in his day is that there are a lot of wicked rich people. So the, the, the rich have become wicked, or they become rich through wicked means. Um, building houses when they don't need extra houses, acquiring more land when they don't actually need more land, squeezing other people out who need land but they can't get it, um, exploiting people. Uh, just go back and read the first few chapters of Isaiah, and it's a pretty common theme. So I think he is saying that these specific rich people are the wicked people. He's putting them in, in parallel fashion there. Yeah, and, it, and it's just kind of making a general statement. So it's not saying every single rich person is wicked. It's not saying that. It's just saying in general, in their day there in Israel, there were people who had become wealthy through selfish or wicked means. David, you have a question? Yes, I'm sorry. It should be verse 9. Thank you. It's right in the notes, but it's wrong in the PowerPoint. So, yeah, good eye. It's 53.9. Yep. Yeah, it's way off, right? They'd have to have all kinds of different colors up there. Yep. So I noticed actually this last set of hand notes, or I must have been kind of sleepy when I was doing it because I went back a second time and noticed all kinds of typos, but now we have a typo up in the PowerPoint as well. So let's just pick up that objection again. So some object that wicked and rich seem to be parallel statements. So in response, I think this is how you could respond, Joseph could have been a wicked man who, like many others in Matthew's gospel, has become an unlikely disciple, without the S, disciple, when he repented and began following his master Jesus. So that's one way you could explain it. You could say that's what Isaiah had always meant, that the, the wicked person, the rich person, has the grave where Jesus shows up, and Joseph is this wicked, rich person, but he's now been converted. So he would fit in with all kinds of other people that we've seen in Matthew's gospel who become unlikely converts, not the people that we expect. But even if we don't go that path, just at minimum, I think at minimum, I think Matthew's trying to remind us that some rich people do, by God's grace, enter the kingdom of heaven. So here I put as a parallel Matthew 19. Remember when he's interacting with the, the rich young man who doesn't want to leave his possessions and follow. And Jesus says it's very difficult uh, for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like a camel going through the eye of the needle. And then his disciples are like, well, then that means nobody can be saved. And then one of those great statements in the gospel message, uh, it is impossible with man, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And then in Luke's gospel, he follows that right up with Zacchaeus. So Zacchaeus is his example of a rich man who is saved. I just wonder if maybe Matthew is doing the same thing. He, he doesn't have the Zacchaeus story, 
but he has the Joseph story, another rich man who truly is a follower of Christ. His riches aren't an obstacle. He actually is converted. Yes? First Timothy 6, uh, 18 through 20, thereabouts. It's a good cross-reference to that because it deals with uh, rich people that are believers, and it doesn't say, it doesn't tell them, oh, you're rich. Uh, you have to sell all you have and give to the poor. It says, don't be arrogant and be ready to give. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, riches are a tool, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's similar, I think, in my mind at least, it's parallel to like, um, you know, the discussions that sometimes we have about uh, weapons, for example, right? Uh, the weapon, if it's used rightly, can be a tool, right? But it also could be misused, and certainly it could be something that you love. And so it's not money itself that's the root of all evils. Remember, it's the love of money that's the root of all evils. In Luke's Gospel, he makes quite a few unique statements and unique parables about the right use of money. And one of them is the parable where the man uses his money to gain friends. And he's doing it for his own secular, selfish purposes. And Jesus' point was, if that guy can do it to make friends, then you, as my followers, you actually could use it for gathering other followers so that someday when you enter into heaven, there'd be other people that you would see there with you. So that's one of Luke's unique parables, but we got to get back to Matthew, right? Because I'll get distracted and I'll start talking about Luke. Well, the other thing that happens in this little passage is we're introduced to these, these women that have been at the, uh, at the cross. So actually, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about uh, a group of women. John actually has four women named. Matthew, Mark just have three. So if we assume that the three in Matthew and Mark are also in John, and I think that's a safe assumption that for whatever reason he just left out the fourth one, then we can kind of make a few deductions. Notice Mary Magdalene shows up in all three lists. In John's list, uh, he names Jesus' mother there. Okay, Remember, her name is Mary, which is a super common name in the first century. We think it was the most common name for little Jewish girls to receive because it's just uh, our version of the word Miriam. So it's, you're being named after Moses' sister. Right? So there were lots of little Miriams or Marys running around as little girls growing up to be women. All right? So I think it's because of that reason that he says Jesus' mother, Jesus' mother's sister, for example. So it seems likely, I think, that in Matthew's list and Mark's list, that middle Mary, the one that's the Mary of James and Joseph or Joseph, I think that's probably actually Jesus' mother. So he's naming two of the other half-brothers of our Lord. He's leaving out James and some of the other ones that are well-known, but he's naming, um, I'm, so, I'm sorry, he does name James. So I think that's likely his mother. And then I think the other thing that you can say then is that means that Salome is also the mother of Zebedee's sons. All right, And then putting that all together, that probably means that Salome, the mother of the apostles John and James, the sons of Zebedee, is Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister. I think that you can make that a strong argument that they're sisters, and so that makes James and John Jesus' cousins. But all of that aside, just notice the fact that he, all three of these gospel writers 
choose to emphasize the fact that there were women who were there watching while Jesus died. Because remember, except for John, who we only know from John's Gospel, he's there, right? Again, maybe a, a close family connection brings him there. But the rest of them have scattered. So while all of these men have scattered, who are going to be the future leaders of the church, he does have some true followers. And again, they're unlikely ones. And I say there at the, the bottom of page 111 that these are very unlikely choices for Matthew to choose to focus on, not only at the cross, but remember, skipping ahead just a little bit in the story, that two of them are going to come back on the first day of the week and are going to be the first witnesses to the resurrection. I just want to give you a little flavor. This is from Quarles' commentary. He quotes a rabbinic source. This is later than the time of Jesus, but it probably reflects the view that Jesus and his contemporaries would have faced. So here, you know, this rabbi so-and-so gets quoted. He says, don't talk too much with women. And then it says, he spoke of a man's own wife. All the more so is the rule to be applied to the wife of one's fellow. In this regard, did the sages say, so long as a man talks too much with a woman, he brings trouble on himself, wastes time better spent studying Torah, and ends up a, an heir of Gehenna. So that's terrible, right? You wonder what his wife would have said, right, if we could have interviewed her. But that's not the view that Jesus has, right? Jesus is completely different than the other religious leaders of his day because he specifically spends time with women, he has disciples who are women, and all you have three of the gospel writers actually focusing on women as witnesses to his death and resurrection. All right? So then turning the page at the top of page 112, one last thing that gets emphasized in this paragraph, I think, is that Jesus really is dead. He gets placed into this tomb that's cut out of rock. So this is kind of one uh, artist's representation of what it could have looked like. So it's kind of been cut away like that temple that we saw last week so that we can see inside. But it says here that it was cut out of rock. So the rock had been made into a cave. It has a large stone that rolls in a track in order to seal the entrance. We know it's really large because remember in um, Mark's Gospel, when the two women, the two Marys, are coming back on Sunday morning, they're asking themselves, how are we going to move the stone? All right, So it's, it's at least large enough that these two women don't feel like they can move the stone on their own. All right, And he's here protected by guards. Okay, So not only is he in a sealed stone tomb, but he gets a large contingent of guards. So in um, the middle of that paragraph, I say the guards are sent by Pilate. So these are likely Pilate soldiers that he sends. So they're relatively professional. And it's probably more than we usually think of, all right? It's more than just a couple. And we know that. Look at verse 11 in your Bibles. So a little bit later, after they've let their charge escape, so to speak, and they're worried about their lives, it says that some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. All right. So if it's some of the guards, you got to think that at least two or three of them went, because right? they're going to be in trouble. I don't think it's just one or two guys. So you got to think it's at least three or four. 
and the three or four only make up some, all right? So less than half. Usually that expression sum means less than half. So you're probably up to a group of men of, of seven or eight, something in that ballpark of soldiers who are guarding this tomb, but that's not able to keep Jesus in. So I think the, uh, the emphasis here is on the fact that he truly was dead. Uh, the, the priests and the Pharisees, they're, they're aware of the fact that he's predicted his resurrection. They're calling him a deceiver, and so they're posting this guard in order to protect the tomb. But then on the first, first day of the week, picking up at the beginning of first, uh, verse 1 of chapter 28, so what we would now call Sunday, the two Marys that were referred to earlier, so again, this is probably Mary Magdalene, and then we're not positive about the other Mary, but it's, it's likely his mother, so Mary, his mother. They returned to the tomb right after dawn to finish the burial process by adding spices to Jesus' wrapped body. So inside these tombs, you can kind of see in the back of the picture, there would have been some kind of shelf or ledge where the body would have been wrapped. Eventually, it would have received more wrappings, more spices. Eventually, years later, after it had been decomposed down to bones, they would come back in and gather the bones, and they'd put the bones into a little box, an ossuary, okay? So that was the, the end goal. But Jesus never gets that far, right? Because when they show up that morning, he's already, he's already gone. The tomb is empty. It's sometimes argued in the middle of number one there, that first paragraph, that Jesus' resurrection on Sunday means that he would have had to been crucified on Thursday or even Wednesday in order to be in the tomb for three days and three nights. Because remember, this is the prophecy that he gave earlier, back in chapter 12. He said, just like uh, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So way back at the beginning of the class, I feel like it was in September, somebody asked me this question, and I, I didn't forget, so I remembered it. I don't know if they're here tonight. I can't remember who asked it. Okay, you asked it, all right? So that's the question. Some people have argued, well, if he has to be in the tomb for three days and three nights, we need to push the crucifixion back a little bit. He couldn't have died on Friday. That's the argument. But I think if we put ourselves into their perspective, the way the Jewish people would have used that phrase, they would have used that phrase to refer to parts of three days. That's not how we would say it, but I think that is how they would say it. So you got a couple Bible references there where in Genesis and 2 Chronicles, they refer to something as a part of a day being treated like a whole day. They'll even do that if the expression day and night is used. So I think that's the hardest part for us. You know, we, could, we can maybe understand, okay, if he said three days, it doesn't mean three 24-hour days. But if he says three days and three nights, that does seem a little longer. But I think this is one passage that you can go to to see how they use the expression. So this is from Esther, chapter 4, and then going into chapter 5. So remember, this is when she's going to go into her husband, the king, and she's not really sure how she's going to get received. He may just kill her on sight for so boldly marching in and asking something of him. So she says to uh, Mordecai, that's her cousin, right? I think her cousin, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. 
Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So if that had been written in English in our day, we would think, well, the way that's supposed to work, there's going to be three 24-hour periods of fasting, and then when it's done, she's going to go in and see the king. That's how we would use the expression. But that's not how they're using the expression, and we can see that because, look, it's on the third day. So on the third day, she goes in, puts on her royal robes, and walks in and talks to the king. So I think that's similar to what's happening in Jesus' prophecy. I'll be in the ground for three days and three nights. He means parts of three days. So he's, he is dead on Friday. He is dead on Saturday. He is dead on Sunday. But it's on Sunday, on the third day, just like it was on the third day that Esther went to see her husband, that Jesus rises from the dead. So just putting up the little timeline again. Remember, he dies before the sun goes down on Friday. He's in the grave then part of Friday, all of Saturday. Sometime after dawn, so part of Sunday, he's still dead. And on the, three day, on the third day, he comes back to life, just as he predicted. So I think he, he not only fulfills the sign of Jonah, I say there in point two, he not only fulfills his own prophecies that he's been giving all the way through Matthew, but he also fulfills Old Testament prophecies. So again, thinking of Isaiah 53, said that after the suffering servant had died, he would see again. He would have life. He would have offspring. The only way he can do that is if he was resurrected. Any, any follow-up questions there? Yeah, he had died before the Sabbath, correct? So Sabbath would be starting Friday afternoon at sunset. At sunset, yeah. So really, it would have been Thursday during the day, pretty much. I mean, that day earlier, considering it's, it's really Friday for us, but that day before, that would still be Thursday before sunset, which would start the Sabbath. Yes, yeah. What it, yeah, for them, it would be still the same day that we call... Well, I don't know. I think that might be a confusing way to think of it because on, on the night that we call Thursday, their Friday would have begun. Right. So they still right. would have referred to that as the day before the Sabbath. Right. Okay. Yeah. It gets confusing because we're yeah. so used to days and nights switching at midnight, right. but they're switching days and nights when the sun goes down. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's roughly 3 o'clock in the afternoon ballpark because they don't keep time the way we do, but roughly 3 o'clock in the afternoon on Friday that Jesus dies. He, he, his body is taken down quickly because, one, they don't want him to still be there when it's dark because that violates Deuteronomy. They especially don't want him to be there on a Sabbath. So for both reasons, they quickly get him down off the cross. That's why they hurriedly prepare his body, and that's why the women are coming back because the burial process hasn't been finished. He's been wrapped up, but he hasn't been fully treated with all the spices and perfumes that a body normally would be treated with. They can't come back on Saturday because that's the Sabbath, so they wait until the sun comes up on what we would call Sunday. They show up to prepare the body, and then the tomb is open. And just remember, I say this at one point in the notes, that the tomb is not open so that Jesus can get out. The tomb is open so that the witnesses can get in. Jesus does not need that stone to be moved in order for him to get past it or to get past the guards, right? 
all of those other things that happen are for our benefit so that other people can get in and actually see he, you know, he's risen. Uh, any, any other follow-ups? It's a tough question, but um, I think if you look at those different references there from the Old Testament, you can see how that similar expression is used. A little bit of irony, I think, point three. So we've seen some irony earlier in the account from Matthew. The one who has the joking little label above his head as he dies, this is the king of the Jews. He really is the king of the Jews, right? They say he saved others, he can't save himself. But actually, the only way he can save others is by not saving himself. So again, some irony. And these men who are supposed to be protecting the dead man in order to keep him in, they actually become like dead men. That's the expression that Matthew uses in verse 4. When they see these angels show up, they actually become like dead men, while the one who was dead is now alive, and he seems to just walk right past them. So the women go in, they see that the tomb is empty. Uh, then as they're leaving, because remember the angel tells them that they're supposed to go back to Galilee. They're supposed to tell the disciples to meet Jesus there in Galilee. Jesus actually appears to them. They grab onto his feet. I think that's significant. He, he's not a ghost. So our Lord Jesus has a body. He still has a body. To be, to be human is to have a body. So somewhere... In the place that we call heaven, he is at the right hand of our Father ruling, and he has a body. And when he returns, he will have a body, just like we someday after the resurrection will have new bodies. But it's a body that can be felt, right? The different gospel writers emphasize this. John emphasizes that he actually has a, a fish meal, like he can actually sit down and eat with his disciples. But these ladies actually grab a hold of his feet and it says that they, they worship him. So just to kind of skim over that paragraph, I put up some of the different uh, places in Matthew where Jesus is either knelt before or he's worshipped. It mean, That same word can mean the same thing. So the word to kneel and the word to worship, it's the same word. Okay. So you could argue in some of these instances that the person isn't really worshipping him. But at least you've got people who have recognized who he is and they've bowed down in front of him. All right, probably the most unusual one maybe is the, mother's, the mother of James and John. Remember, she kneels down in front of him in chapter 20, verse 20, and she makes kind of that inappropriate request on behalf of her sons. But just remember before we treat her too harshly that she's also there at the cross, right? She's also there at the cross. She doesn't abandon him. So maybe she did in that moment ask something wrongly of our Lord, but she is a genuine disciple. So if you had lots of people all the way through Matthew's gospel that have recognized who he is. Point four there, just notice it's interesting. In verse 10, I'll, I'll read verse 10 for us. It says, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. So that seems to be kind of a, an ongoing theme here. These, the ladies are afraid. They're afraid of what they have seen. They might be afraid of what the men are going to say when they go back. They're probably afraid of what this means in, face, in the face of the government and other people. But he says, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to do, go to Galilee. There they will see me. 
So one last time in Matthew's Gospel, his disciples, his followers are his brothers. They are his, his family. They've scattered. They, they severely let him down on the night of his betrayal. They weren't there with him, but they are his family, and he's going to see them. And I say there in the footnote, this doesn't mean that he's not going to see them before Galilee. So the other gospel writers will say that they see him that day. They're going to see him later there in Jerusalem. Uh, but he is eventually going to go back to Galilee, and they're all going to meet him there. But meanwhile, you've got the ladies who are worshiping at his feet, recognizing who he truly is. But then the scene shifts to the chief priests. All right? They hear the report from the soldiers, and they still have hard hearts. Right? He actually has done the sign of Jonah. And just as he predicted, they're not going to accept even if somebody did rise from the dead. They immediately try to start covering it up, paying off these soldiers to say that his disciples came and stole the body. And Matthew, evidently, when he's writing this 25, 30 years later, he knows that this story is still being circulated. And it says it's the story that's circulated among the Jews to this very day, which kind of implies that there was another story that was circulating other places, including the true story, right? So from the get-go, uh, there's always been false theories of what happened to Jesus' body. They've always been irrational, illogic, but they're the explanation when you refuse to believe what's obvious, that he actually did truly rise from the dead. I think Quarles in his commentary there, he does a really good job in that paragraph, point six, that I copied for you. He says, at the very least, readers should know that the resurrection serves as a confirmation of Jesus' identity as the Son of God. So let me just put up there on the screen. The font's maybe a little small. I was trying to fit a lot on there. But this would be all of the places in Matthew's Gospel where his, uh, his identity as the Son of God is referenced. So at the top of the list, twice, the Father himself, remember, in Matthew's Gospel has said, this is my son whom I love. So you have the father's own testimony. You've had Satan saying, if you are, right? You've had the demons saying that he is, and they're scared of him. You finally had the disciples confessing it. You've got Peter's big confession in chapter 16. You've got the high priest sounding just like Satan, if you are, right? Then you have the people at the cross who are mocking him, right? So evidently, what he said in front of the high priest has circulated. And they take it to mean that he, he affirmed it, that he truly is the Son of God. So they're mocking him. Well, if you're the Son of God, save yourself. Come down from the cross, right? And then they say in verse 43, let God rescue him. If he's really God's Son, then God would rescue him from death, right? He wouldn't let this happen to him. And what Quarles goes on to say is that God actually did. So God would rescue him from death. He said they assume that such rescue from death must come before death. God has now rescued his son from death, even in a more powerful and dramatic way. After his death, Jesus did not come down from the cross to show that he is the son of God. He did something far greater. He came out of the tomb. So we have stories of people who survived the cross. So they, friends would come and get them later, take them down, bandage them up. You could recover from it, right? 
but we don't have stories of people surviving three days in a tomb, right? That doesn't happen. You, you can come down from crosses and be rescued, but humanly speaking, you can't be rescued from death. But the Father did do that for the Son. So one more time, we have a reminder of who his true identity actually is. All right, then they meet up in uh, Galilee. That's how the story ends. So verses 16 through 20, point one there, Jesus met his disciples in Galilee where they had returned home following the Passover. Have you ever wondered why specifically in Galilee on this mountain? Right? Has that question ever crossed your mind? It's kind of a puzzle. Some people have tried to figure out what mountain. It's impossible to say. There are a lot of hills. So this is a picture near uh, the Sea of Galilee, the traditional site of the Sermon on the Mount. Some people think it might have been the Mount of the Transfiguration. There's lots of different mountains. But if you think about it, in Matthew's story, mountains have featured pretty prominently. Mountains are where big things have happened in the story. All right, so one last big thing's going to happen. And I, I point out a couple other ideas that different writers have had. Some people have noted that Galilee was associated earlier with the nations. So if he's going to begin his, his, the mission that his disciples are going to carry out of taking the gospel to the nations, it makes sense that he'd go back to the border countries there in Galilee that were associated with the nations. Also, that's where he's always been ministering, right? It wasn't until the very last week of his life that Matthew's story switched to Jerusalem. For all of the rest of Matthew, we were in Galilee, right? Except for that little beginning part when he was first born. So it seems like maybe this is his way of saying, you're now picking up the torch. I'm passing the baton onto you you're going to carry out the same ministry that I had. Notice, though, they're, they're a mixed bunch. I think we see ourselves in them. Look at verse 17. They again worship him. So back in my previous slide, they were the, the last slot. So the last group of people who worship Jesus and Matthew are these 11. But notice the next phrase, but some doubted. So it's worship, but it's mixed with fears and doubts, right? Reminder to us that we're not finished products, right? We aren't the people that we used to be because of the new birth, but the results of the new birth aren't completed yet, right? We're not yet what we will be someday. And we've seen ourselves for good and bad in these disciples. But notice what Jesus does to encourage them. It actually says he came up to them in verse 18, and he says in the familiar passage, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So this sounds a lot like Daniel chapter 7. You think about all this talk about authority, this talk about the nations, this talk about worship. This all, I think, connects back to Daniel's prophecy that someday there would be a human, a son of man, who would be given authority over the nations, and he would have all people worship him. Right? He, all people would worship him. And it's starting out with this little group of people. They're supposed to go out, and they have a very specific mission to take. So this is uh, the Great Commission, uh, verses 19 through 20. So it's pretty common to hear sometimes people, when they're teaching this passage, they'll emphasize the fact that the only real imperative or command is make disciples. Go is more of a, like a, a participle. But it's a little bit of misunderstanding. I think... It is a parsable, but it's a parsable that comes before a command. 
And so they go together as a command. So the command really is that we need to go and we need to make disciples. They're not, the people won't always come to us. We're, ha- we're going to have to go find them. And this matches, I think, what Jesus did back in chapter 10. Do you remember the five big discourses that Matthew's gospel is built around? That second one, back in chapter 10, was the discourse on their mission. Remember, as we went through that passage, he, at first it looks like he's only talking to the twelve. But about halfway through when he's talking, we realize he's not now just talking to them, but he's talking to them as representative of all of us. And he says, you're going to go out into a dangerous world. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be brought before government rulers. You're not going to have to worry about what you're going to say because words are going to be given to you. You're going to actually have family members who turn against you. So there's all kinds of things in this world that would scare us away from accomplishing Jesus' mission. At, at just a very human level, sometimes it's just the fear of talking, right? I mean, let, you know, let alone just go across the street right, and talk to our neighbor, um, not to mention going to another country where they would have hostile governments in, in, that would oppose us. But with whatever fears or doubts that we might have that creep into our thinking, Jesus is reminding us that we go out with his authority to make disciples. And what would that look like? Well, that's where I think the two words in yellow come in. Those are the, those are the means or the ways that this is going to be characterized. You're going to make disciples, and it's going to look like baptizing them. So they're going to become parts of church. So baptism is the initiation rite. It brings us into the body of Christ. It doesn't just represent our connection with Jesus. It represents our connection with Jesus' body. So that's why we believe that you're baptized in order to become a member. You're not just baptized to represent your salvation, but just like John baptized people to form a new community that was going to enter the kingdom, now we're baptizing people who are part of this new community that we call the church that someday will enter Jesus' kingdom. And this is going to go on all the way until the end of the age. All right, so picking up, I think, let's go to page 115. I just wanted to talk a little bit there, point five, about the fact that we're making disciples. It's interesting, he doesn't say we're making believers, although he could have said that. And we know from earlier in the, in the gospel that Disciples isn't like a subset of super-Christians. So it's not like there's a big group of Christians, and then inside of that group, there's the disciples, like the really dedicated bunch. To be a believer, a true believer, a follower of Jesus, is to be a disciple. So, or to be a disciple is to be a true follower of Christ, right? So that's what he's saying. Make people who follow me, right? And they're going to look like people who are joining churches and learning to obey everything that I've commanded. All right. Just remember, I say there in point five, that following Jesus as his disciple means denying ourselves and taking up a cross. Remember that was in chapter 16. It also means taking upon ourselves Jesus' yoke. So that was back in chapter 11. So as our king, he will make demands of us. He, he does have law. He does have things that he's commanded us to do. We, we have obligations to him. That's why he says we take his yoke 
and we put it on him. But to continue his thought, he also makes those demands possible. And he promises to help us because he said in that same passage, verse 30, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One last thing that we can see from this passage is that he's promised to always be with us, right? So I, everyone, I think, has, has recognized that this is a, a bookend to the gospel. So at the very beginning, he was supposed to be named Emmanuel because he was God with us. So even when that first little baby showed up, right, in Bethlehem to this unassuming family in a stable, he was God with us, right? He was the answer to the prophecies of Isaiah. But when he now ascends to heaven and we no longer see him, we've never physically seen him, he is still with us. So when we speak of his human nature, he has a body. He's in a place, right, at the right hand of the Father. But when we speak of his divine nature, he's omnipresent. So he's here right now with us. He'll always be with us. He sees us. He cares about us. And remember, he thinks of us as our family. And I think Matthew also is doing one last thing with this little reference to, I am with you always. Back, at the, back in the story of Moses, so we've seen many times as we've gone through this gospel that Jesus is being connected to Moses. He's a new Moses, but he's also a better Moses. Moses, remember, he actually sins. He can't go into the promised land because of what happened with the, the rock and the water coming out of the rock. So he's dying as an old man. He gets Joshua to be his successor. He calls the people together. He gives them their final marching orders before they're going to head off into the conquest. And remember, they're scared, right? They're going to go as untrained soldiers into places with fortified cities and people who are used to fighting. Their, their fathers who died in the wilderness got so scared that they didn't trust God. Remember, they said the people are giants. We're not going to go into the land, right? So again, you've got people waiting to go to the promised land, being charged by Moses. You need to listen to God and you need to keep his commandments. Don't be afraid, even though you're worried about everything that's going to happen. And the reason is because God is going to go with you. So this is what the passage said. So this, remember, this is Moses talking. He says, the Lord, your God himself, will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you, as the Lord said. And the Lord will do to them what he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites, whom he destroyed along with their land. The Lord will deliver them to you, and you must do to them all that I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You see what Jesus is doing here in his final words? He's picking up the words of Moses, but he's not putting himself in Moses' spot, so to speak. He's actually putting himself in God's spot. He's not saying, God will be with you always. It's because God is with you that you don't have to be scared. He's saying, it's because I'm with you. I'll always be with you. I'll be with you to the very end of the age. And we think about what Moses is saying here. He's saying that God has always gone before them and fought for them. There was always an angel of the Lord, a representation of God himself who went before the people and fought on their behalf. 
And we know now that that was the Son of God. It was the Son of God who picked up a sword, so to speak, and marched in front of those people so that they could be safely brought to their promised land. And here you have the same one who has now added humanity, and he's speaking to another group of people who are waiting to go to the promised land. And between where we are now and that kingdom, that promised land that we're all waiting, we've got a whole bunch of difficult years perhaps ahead of us with all kinds of things that he's commanded us to do that might seem very difficult. And we might just be downright scared sometimes. And the only way that we can overcome that fear is by looking away from ourselves to, to Jesus, our God, Emmanuel. He will always be with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. So we, just like Moses said to the people of Israel, should be strong and very courageous. All right. Any final questions about Matthew's story? I think it's really important, I'll just say, while you're, maybe you're thinking of questions, I'll still let you have questions, that um, there is a place that God has prepared for us. It's a promised land, right? And he did this once before, right? Once before, he got a people, and he took them to a promised land that was very good. But what happened was that they brought a contagion with them. They brought a disease with them. It was sin. So they actually contaminated the land themselves because they brought sin, which is internal, with them to that promised land. This time, God's doing it in reverse. He's making the people first. So he could have come and he could have made another promised land. He could have made the best world possible. But if he had done that, then Jesus would have been the only person worthy to be there. Letting anybody else in would have again contaminated. So now he's creating things in reverse order. This time around, it's going to be the people, and then it's going to be the place. So right now, that's, I think, what's going on in his kingdom program. The king has been born. The people are being gathered. We're all over this globe, but we meet in little churches, little communities. And someday we're going to our place. We're going to our home. And I think the, the passage in Deuteronomy, I think, helps us think about that connection when we think about the pattern in Moses and the original people of Israel. Any other questions or thoughts? Yes? Did you ever um, find out what happened to Jesus when he led captivity captive? Yeah. I haven't full no. So the the question is, I'll say it for the camera just to be bold. The question is, you know, where, where does Jesus go while he's, while he's physically dead? Like, where does he go in spirit? Does he descend to Hades? It's just hard to know. I, I do think that it's possible that he went and he declared victory over um, the satanic, the demonic spirits who are in chains. So I don't know if there's any preaching or declaration that goes on to humans but I think one of those passages in the, the New Testament is actually referring to the fact that he might have gone and proclaimed, hey, I did it, I'm victorious. And he said that to the spirits who are in chains. All right, So that would be one passage. The passage you're thinking of in Ephesians, you know, that picks up imagery of a, of a king who's come back from battle, and he, they have a triumphal parade. So the Roman emperors would do this. They did it after they sacked Jerusalem, right? 
we have an arch that's still there in Rome that Titus built. And he shows the Roman soldiers carrying the candlestick and the other things out of the temple. And then they'd bring prisoners behind them and execute them and all this stuff. And so I think Paul is picking up on the imagery that Jesus, as a victorious king, he led a, a triumphal procession, but it's not with the kind of captives that we normally think of, but it's actually with, with people that are part of his, his family. And then he specifically, I'm, I'm forgetting some of the details of the passage, but then he transitions to talking about the, the gifts that he's given to the church, the, the men who lead the church, the apostles, the prophets, pastors and teachers. So I probably got myself in trouble by just talking off cuff there, but I don't, I don't think any of those passages real clearly to me say that Jesus descended to Hades and was giving a gospel or a preaching to dead human spirits. I don't, I don't see anything that clearly says that. There's a reference to 1 Peter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a good thought. So that was the first one that I was kind of thinking of where it talks about he, he goes to speak to spirits. And that's a very tough passage. But I think that it is possible that you're talking about um, those same spirits who are in chains that other passages talk about. Jude talks about that. So there, there seems to be a pretty strong tradition um, in the, in the intertestamental period, so this would be between the time that the Old Testament was written and the New Testament was written, we have lots of documents. They're not scripture, they're not all true, but they were written and they were popular. And one of the traditions is they believe that there was some kind of angelic rebellion in Genesis 6 where angels did something that they weren't supposed to. And because of that, uh, some of them are imprisoned or, or chained, right? And that does seem to fit where... Remember in um, Matthew's Gospel, is that chapter 9, I think, when he casts out the, the demons with the man at the tomb? Those demons seem to be concerned that they'll go somewhere before their time, that Jesus actually has the authority to send them someplace where they don't want to go, and that would fit if there was already this place where some of them were, were already. But yeah, that's... We're getting out into the speculation territory a little bit, too. We're not exactly sure. Any other questions? Could, have, could it have been the story where he sends you know, send Lazarus down and tip, my finger, tip his finger, and so saying that the saints and the wicked are together, but mm. there's a gulf between yeah, so that's a good question. Is you know the story that Jesus tells about the rich man Lazarus, is that a parable? Is he just kind of making up a parable like he normally does, or is he telling a true story? Uh, some people would say it's a true story because he names Lazarus, and then other people would argue the only reason he names Lazarus is because later he is going to raise someone named Lazarus from the dead. Um, so I'm not sure. I'm I'm probably more inclined to think that's a parable. And that means that not necessarily all of those details are exactly as things really are. But again, I'm, I'm really not sure. You guys, you guys are going to crack me up. You know, I, I, I just told you ahead of time, I don't know. It's not my area. But you're like, no, I want to ask him questions about it. We're going to hammer him on these, this topic. No, nobody has a Matthew question? 
That's right. Well, thank you very much for being here and participating. I appreciate it. I've, I've learned a lot studying. It's, it's been a great privilege. So thanks for having me. And uh, look, I would always come back if they invited me. They'll, they'll probably get other people in for a while first, though. So, all right. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks.